0: From around the eighth to the late fourth centuries BCE, the Greek world consisted of around 1,000 city-states concentrated in the southern Balkan Peninsula and the Aegean and spread over the coastlands of the Mediterranean and Black Seas. In these centuries, the archaic and classical periods that have been canonized as Greek civilization, this network of city-states was characterized by a close relationship with a sea, a fierce insistence on local autonomy, and a complicated interaction with a powerful dominant non-Greek imperial states of the Near East, Egypt, Babylonia, and from the sixth century, the Persian Empire. This all changed suddenly in 334 BCE, when Alexander the Great, the young king of Macedonia, steered his flagship across the Hellespont and from its prow threw a spear onto the beach of Troy. With this symbolic act of invasion, a deliberate emulation of the Homeric heroes, he launched his campaign of conquest across the Near East, North Africa, Central Asia, and Northern India. Alexander's campaign is one of the best understood and most densely studied moments in all antiquity, and it has been turned in some complex and often pernicious ways into the archetypal case of the European man going east, of the triumphal and heroic conquest of Hellenism over a supine Asia. Yet, conqueror of the world, though he was, Alexander failed to sire a male heir, an adult male heir. And as a result, in a civil war that lasted more than a generation, his vast empire broke into three great powers ruled by lines of kings descending from his generals. These offer the ancient historian three usefully different scenarios of Greco-Macedonian imperialism. In Macedonia, Alexander's own homeland, we find the Antigonid kingdom, shown in red. This was basically a monocultural Hellenic sphere, its kings slotting themselves into the long institutional tradition of Macedonian national monarchy. In Egypt, yellow, the Ptolemaic dynasty, running from Ptolemy I to the famous Cleopatra VII, um, this dynasty ruled a bicultural, Janus-faced kingdom of Greeks and Egyptians centered on the new capital of Alexandria, and its rulers worked to fit themselves into the ancient pharaonic paradigm of kingship. And finally, the kingdom which is my focus, the Seleucid Empire, in green, multicultural, or perhaps better, hydra-headed. Over the course of the second and first centuries BCE, each of these kingdoms would be defeated by the expansion of the Roman Republic, relentless as a tectonic plate, first Macedonia, then Asia, finally Egypt. The historical period of these three great kingdoms is known as the Hellenistic Age. It's one of the most thrilling moments in all ancient history. From the perspective of classics, the spatial frame of Greek history suddenly and rapidly explodes from the coastlands of the Mediterranean to Central Asia, the Sudan, India, and the borders of China. Near Eastern history and Greek history become the same project there's a greater urgency to all forms of cultural and intellectual interaction between the Greek world and former neighbors, now subjects. The dominant form of Greek governments becomes territorial monarchy, not city-state democracy. And for the first time, Greek history becomes a true history of empire, that is, of a spatially extensive rule over non-Greek populations and all that follows from this. At its height in the third and early second centuries, the Seleucid Empire extended from Central Asia to Bulgaria, from Armenia to Bahrain, before expanding down the Levantine coast at the beginning of the second century BCE, when it lost its eastern and western peripheries. It had two basic characteristics from which its forms of statecraft and claims to legitimacy descend. First, most obviously, an extraordinary Linguistic, religious, and social diversity. So, from the greater Iranosphere in the east, so there's kind of Central Asia, Persia, Mesopotamia, fabulously fertile, much of our evidence comes from here, Anatolia, um, including important Greek city states on its um, western coast, and eventually also the Levant, so Lebanon, Israel, the Palestinian territories. Second foundational characteristic and quite a bizarre one, actually. The Seleucid kingdom was ruled by a dynasty and an imperial elite who came from Greece and Macedonia, who spoke Greek and who privileged Hellenic cultural forms. Yet, their Greco-Macedonian homeland lay outside the kingdom's territories. It was a kind of imperialism of diaspora, of which it's hard to find a close parallel. It would be like imagining British India without Britain. What I want to suggest today is that this double situation, On the one hand, a confrontation with cultural multiplicity and the sense of arbitrariness that follows. And on the other, the disembeddedness of this imperial elite, the fact of being sundered from all the traditional forms and claims of the Greco-Macedonian homeland, generated forms of statecraft that tended toward abstraction to a degree otherwise unparalleled in the ancient world. In my first book, as Judy mentioned, I explored how this worked at a spatial level things like grid plan, cities, road building, and measurement, geographic exploration, and science. This afternoon, I'll introduce some ideas on Seleucid time reckoning, which is the focus of my current book project, which is the new working title, Time and Its Adversaries in the Seleucid Empire. Now, I accept that chronology and dating may not seem the most exciting of things, but they're the stuff that history is made on. In two respects they turn the past historical. Dates allow things to happen only once, and dates insist on the ordering and interrelation of all happenings. An event must be chained to its place in time before it becomes an available object for historical articulation. And the modes by which we apprehend such historical time frame how we experience our present, conceive a future, remember the past, reconcile with impermanence, and make sense of a world far wider, older, and more enduring than any of us. Today, almost everyone in the world thinks of the passage of historical time in these terms. And it will sound completely obvious. This year is 2018. Last year was 2017. Next year will be 2019. We're confident that a century ago, it was 1918. And in a 1,000 years, it will be 3018, if there's anyone left to name it. All of us are fluent with these years. We're used to writing them everywhere. As a child, I used to line up my pennies by year of minting. And now I carefully note dates of publication in my scholarship. Year numbers are ubiquitous. I'm going to ask you to imagine a world without such a numbered timeline. I think it may be ultimately impossible for us to sort of inhabit such a world, but we should try. Because before the Seleucid Empire, historical time the public and annual marking of the passage of years was measured in only three ways, by unique events, by annual offices, or by royal life cycles. So years could be designated by an outstanding event of the preceding 12 months, selected and formulated by state authorities into long lists of date formulas. So from uh, ancient Mesopotamia, something occurred, say, in the year when King Ennilbani made for the god Ninurta three very large copper statues. That's how you'd give a date. Or years could be dated by the name of the holder of an annual office of state. So say something happened in the magistracy of Pythodorus from Athens or in the consulship of two named Romans. Finally, and most commonly in monarchic states, was counting by the regnal year of an individual monarch in the third year of King Alexander, for example. But each of these systems was geographically localized. There was no transcendent or translocal system for locating oneself in the flow of history. There was no uncomplicated way to synchronize events at geographical distance. Two quick examples to illustrate this. Um, One from the club of Greek city-states, the other from the succession of Mesopotamian kingdoms. This is how. The famous Athenian historian, Thucydides, attempted to date the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War, fought between Athens and Sparta at the end of the fifth century BCE. And he's doing his utmost to give as precise a date as possible. The 30 years peace, which was entered into after the conquest of Euboea, lasted 14 years. In the 15th year, in the 48th year of the priesthood of Chrysis, and when aeneas was magistrate at Sparta, and there still being two months left of the magistracy of Pythodorus at Athens, Six months after the Battle of Potidaea and at the beginning of spring, a Theban force, a little over 300 strong, at about the first watch of the night, entered into Plataea. So this first shot of war must be synchronized to non-overlapping diplomatic, religious, civic, military, seasonal, and hourly data points. Our other example, um, which I won't read, but it's from the mid-6th century BCE. Um, It's an inscription authored or, um, uh, attributed to Adad Gupi, the mother of the last king of Babylon, set up in an inscription in cuneiform, and it honours her devotion to the moon god Sin. Text is on the screen, you can read it yourselves. The point is that Addad Gupi calculates her 95 years, and this is the only way she can do this, by totting up the reigns of six successive monarchs from two different empires, conveniently omitting the king her son had murdered, to take the throne. Thucydides' history and Adad Gupi's autobiography illustrate the complications of pinning down the flow of history in the absence of a transcendent and translocal system. Their dates are intimately tied to central state institutions dependent on a bureaucratic list-making and scribal literacy applicable only within a self-limiting geography and highly sensitive to political change. Indeed, they're not really dates at all, so much as synchronisms between multiple events, coordinating a network of better and lesser-known occurrences. What is being dated and what dates it belong to the same order of things. Try to give the date of, say, your grandma's birth or the invasion of Iraq or American independence in this manner, and then try to explain that to someone from another country. The founder of the Seleucid Empire, a general of Alexander called Seleucus Nicator, changed all of this. He introduced a new system for reckoning the passage of time known as the Seleucid Era. This was the world's first continuous and irreversible tally of counted years. And it's the unheralded ancestor of every subsequent era system, including the Jewish era of creation, the Islamic Hijra, the Christian Anno Domini system, and our own common era. This first ever era was never a regnal count, never a count of Seleucus I's years on the throne. Its opening was placed in 311 BCE, over a decade after the death of Alexander, when Seleucus regained control of Babylon, but six years before he took the throne of kingship. At his death in 281 BCE, his son and successor, Antiochus I, did not restart the calculation, and all subsequent kings continued accordingly. So the date never reverted to year one. These two decisions, at the coronation of Seleucus and at the succession of his son, gave the Seleucid era's temporality a new kind of texture. As we'll see, the era count was decoupled from the phenomenal order of things, objects, or events. It did not represent a king's reign or imperial office. It was not dependent on actions in the real world. It was simply a regular measure of duration that rolled on and on, paratactic, endless. The novel texture of this Seleucid era can be well illustrated in a tiny cuneiform tablet from Babylonia, which carries both the old and the new systems. Um, As an aside, much of our best evidence for Hellenistic chronography comes on cuneiform tablets, which usefully combine an imperishable writing medium, so hundreds of thousands of these survive, with an obsession with accurate dating. Um, The one I'm showing is about the size of a smartphone. Um, The script is a mixture of Sumerian and Akkadian, neither language spoken at this point, but preserved by Hellenistic temple scribes, much like Latin in the monasteries of medieval Europe. Showing two sides of the same tablet, called the obverse, on the left, the reverse on the right, and you can see where a worm has crawled through the obverse. Um, This tablet lists out the astronomical Saros cycle, That is the 18-year intervals in which a lunar eclipse takes place on a particular day. In its preserved form, it extends from the reign of the great Neo-Babylonian monarch Nebuchadnezzar II in the sixth century through the Persian conquest of Babylonia, the Macedonian takeover, and into the early first century BCE. The text is organized into three columns. The right-hand column simply repeats in each row the number 18. That's the interval of duration between the eclipses, the periodicity. The middle column identifies the king in whose reign the eclipse series falls. And the left-hand column begins by giving the regnal year of this ruler. So an eclipse takes place on this particular day in, according to the tablet, the 38th regnal year of Nebuchadnezzar II. Then 18 years later in the seventh year of Nabonidus, another 18 years the eighth year of Cyrus. Um, These are all names to conjure with from biblical history. Note that the regnal numbers in the left-hand column go up and down, dependent on life cycle or conquest. We pass through the Neo-Babylonian, Persian, and early Macedonian dynasties up to the third year of a Macedonian general called Antigonus the One-Eyed. At this point, the dating shifts from regnal counting to the new Seleucid era system, which I'm showing in yellow. The right-hand column continues as before to repeat the number 18 with every entry. The middle column no longer gives the name of a king, but simply the syllabic abbreviation se. And this syllable is repeated without change, despite the death of Seleucus I, succession of his son, Antiochus I, death of Antiochus I, succession of Antiochus II. And in the left-hand column, the year numbers of the Seleucid era accumulate irreversibly at 18-year intervals, without ever restarting or reversing, 15, 33, 51, 69. Amazingly, for me at least, when the scribe turned over the tablet to write on the reverse, the calculations continue, but the middle political column is simply omitted. So in the right column, we have the continuation of the 18-year periodicity. And in the left, the continuous Seleucid era count, 87, 105, 123, 141, 159, 177, 195, 213. I'm reading the numbers because no year dates had ever before approached anything like this magnitude. So what we witness on this modest tablet, I think, is a fairly stark visualization of the distinctiveness of the Seleucid era vis-a-vis previous temporalities. We seem to be watching a homogeneous time transcend the world in two stages, first in yellow with the use of the unchanging syllabic abbreviation, "se," which itself amounts to an entirely new kind of political abstraction for monarchic states. In a curious way, it's the passage of time which has become the site of the immutable. Then on the tablet's reverse, in green, we see the absolute autonomy of the annual reckoning system. And there's almost a Jacobin logic in this temporal technology that can do away with a king. This is temporal transcendence, a universal, absolute, freestanding, regularly increasing number. One last thing, perhaps the most important, but also the hardest to pin down. We don't know when, after the introduction of the Seleucid era, this tablet was written. The era, as a regularly increasing number, permitted an entirely new kind of temporal predictability. It had been impossible for a subject of, say, the elderly Nebuchadnezzar II in the 38th year of his reign to confidently and accurately conceive, name, and hold in the imagination a date several years, decades, or centuries into the future. And this was equally true of the other systems, the year names and the eponyms. Now, with the Seleucid era, this was easy, unproblematic, and uniform for every subject of the Seleucid kings. One of Karl Overknausgaard's recent novels has an image that I think may capture the force of this change. And I do suspect it was actually quite profoundly felt and in a way unnerving. Quote, it was as if a wall had been removed in the room they inhabited. The world no longer enveloped them completely. There was suddenly an opening. Their glance no longer met any resistance, but swept on and on through more of the same. All this would just be an interesting aspect of intellectual history without greater social significance were it not for two additional factors. First point. The Seleucid era was only and exclusively materialized as a number and nothing more. Um, And dates had never before been just a number. So in whatever script the Seleucid era number was recorded, and we have it attested in Greek, Akkadian, Phoenician, and Aramaic, the year's numerical value was universally stable. That's to say, within the extraordinary diversity of the imperial territories, the Seleucid era as a regular and homogeneous chronographic system achieved a regulating and homogenizing force. Second point, the Seleucid era year numbers were marked onto an unprecedented range of public, private, and mobile platforms. Era dates were affixed to market weights, amphora handles, royal and local coinage, building constructions, votive offerings, seal rings, silver bowls, royal letters, civic decrees, tombstones, tax receipts. Priestly lists, boundary markers, astronomical reports, personal horoscopes, marriage contracts, many missions, and much, much more. In our world of ubiquitous date marks, I think it's easy to underestimate the sheer novelty and so historical significance of this mass year marking. But to my best knowledge, this was without precedent or parallel. In no other state in the ancient world, in the Mediterranean or West Asia, did rulers and subjects inhabit spaces that were so comprehensively and consistently dated. In sum, the Seleucid era proposed fundamentally new possibilities and problems of politics, history, and religion, with which I'm wrestling in my book project. It was a new temporal situation that put enormous pressure on long-held notions of the future and the past, and, I'd suggest, one that generated new sites of contestation between empire and its subjects. It's difficult to trace the effects of this new time, for only occasionally will an ancient source make its impact explicit. Time thinking is not so much a thing that can be held as much as a mode of existence that must be inferred. So for today, rather than speaking in general terms, I've chosen two case studies, both relating to the imperial administration, in which this imperial time system was translated into material form, archives and market trade. The evidence compels only in its details, so we'll be descending into the archaeological trench to look closely at some buildings, objects, and their use. These very humble remains offer the only way to begin to access how this time began to pervade society and with what effect. Um, I suspect that to those who don't deal in the ancient world, the evidence I'm about to present will appear unbelievably scanty, um, but this should also give some idea of our method and practice first case study, archives. The preservation of administrative data, tax documents, receipts, wills, government orders, and so on, had been characteristic of complex states since the Bronze Age. And by the Hellenistic period, it had been going on for many centuries in the Mediterranean and Asia. But Seleucid archives stand out for the institutionalization of this imperial time system as the logic of administration in sometimes bizarre ways. Seleucid archives are attested in one way or another at a number of sites. At Sardis in Western Asia Minor, where I do my archaeological work, at Kedesh in Northern Israel, at Dury Europus on the Euphrates. This is a site not far from Raqqa, um, and it has suffered enormously from destruction and looting by ISIS. Um, at Seleucia on the Tigris, Uruk, and Nippur in Iraq, and at Susa, biblical Shushan, in Iran. And no doubt there are many others to be discovered. Less than a handful of administrative documents on papyrus or parchment survive from the Seleucid Empire. I think there might be three from all the territories between Afghanistan and Bulgaria. But hundreds of thousands of such documents did once exist, maybe millions. These were rolled up and sealed with a blob of clay. And then this blob was, inscribed, uh, was impressed with inscribed seal stones, which functioned like authorizing signatures. While the documents themselves don't survive, these clay ceilings have been excavated in their thousands from Seleucid archives. Each of these clay seal impressions, which are called bullae, bears on its surface the seals of public administration alongside personal seals of the private individuals who were engaged in the economic activity once documented within. The number of separate seal impressions on a single clay bulla ranges from 2 to 40. So some documents had sort of 40 signatures on them. In other words, these clay bullae trace the institutionalized encounters between empire and subjects. Over half of them, around 16,000, prominently bear a standardized impression of a Seleucid-era year date. The shape, size, and content of these seals are uniform across Babylonia. Ovoid impressions. With uh, short sides and slightly curving longer edges, carrying a three or four-line Greek inscription. So to give just one example, um, the one in colour at the center of the screen, the stamp's top line identifies the sealed document, which has now been destroyed, as relating to the salt tax, tax on salt trade, halekes in Greek. Bottom line names the fiscal authority, the royal city of Seleucia on the Tigris, on the river Tigris, which I'll talk about shortly. And at the center of the seal, in a much larger script, is the year number in in Greek alphabetic numbers, etic the year 68. And as I say, there are about 16,000 of these. Um, The era year number is privileged as the most dominant element on these bullae. By itself, numbers can represent the empire. These thousands of dated bullae permit the reconstruction of the bureaucratic practice of this new era time. It seems that each year, Seleucid subjects brought their documents to the archive to be sealed and registered, stamping their own inscribed seal rings, which usually showed personal portraits or family symbols, side by side with the empire's year stamps. So all participants in this way were pulled into the standardizing linear logic of the time system. Further, the number and uniformity of these clay bullae 16,000 over one and a half centuries, require that the Seleucid court systematically engraved and annually distributed year-dated seal rings to its officials. So Seleucid administrators, administrators received, and probably wore on their person, these era dates, populating their civic and domestic landscapes with mobile breathing year numbers. And obviously they would need to be replaced every year. The vast majority of these bullae were found in the archive building from the agora of Seleucia on the Tigris. Seleucia was the earliest colonial foundation of the Seleucid empire, established and named after the first king, Seleucus I. It's located just to the south of today's Baghdad, its outline and plan still very visible on Google Earth. It was one of the three great cities of the Hellenistic world, along with Antioch, another Seleucid foundation in northern Syria, and Alexandria in Ptolemaic, Egypt. It was an entirely new city conceived as a replacement to ancient Babylon with a rationalized grid plan, policy institutions, and a mixed population of Babylonians, Greeks, and Jews. Estimates for the population range from about a quarter of a million to half a million. The archive building at Seleucia was constructed along the edge of the Agora, or Market Square, at the north of the city. And it was a building precisely constructed to meet to the new information ordering structure of the Seleucid Era account. Seleucid's archive is the largest known from the ancient world. It's 140 meters long by 6 meters wide. Um, I'm not good at estimating distances, but I think that means about four or five times the length of this room and maybe about half the width of this screen, um, maybe. The building had a modular layout of 14 identical rooms, linked to one another by doorways and accessed not as is shown here um, on the sides, but actually at the short north and south ends. And the wall niches would have been filled with bookcases, giving the impression of a long corridor. More than 25,000 seal impressions of documents were found on the floor of of these modular rooms, following a devastating fire after the capture of the city in the mid-second century BCE. While the bullae have not yet been processed in a way that allows us to correlate the fine spots with the building's architecture, it's hard to doubt that some form of linearized ordering was at work. Certainly, the high proportion of bullae with Seleucid era dates suggests that this time system formed the principal organizing axis. Um, At another Seleucid colony, um, dura on the Euphrates, the one which has now almost been destroyed, there was a, t- a, small, a small little archive um, room which had niches, which circled round the walls of the room, each one dated with a year. So the years cycled in order. Just to explain the photo, at the time when this site was dug in the First World War, archaeological um, photographers used local workers for scale. Right. Um, So the Seleucia archive building represents a streamlined governmental knowledge system, a uniform, predictable temporality extended over a defined linear space. The combination of dates-wearing officials, date-stamped documents, and dated-built infrastructure, basically the correlation of where with when, represents a fundamental simplification of statecraft. This may seem natural or obvious to us, but it was, in fact, new. If I may reverse Marx's famous dictum, it's as if this building were constructed by the bee and not the architect. In its direct rendering into mudbrick cells, the Seleucid era's underlying structure, a single idea, unity in construction, and the linear repetition of an elementary shape. The archive building lined the western side of the Agora. For about 140 meters, it presented an impermeable walled barrier on the city's main public square, obliging movement along its length. Its external aspect was of an absolute unrelenting linearity. Indeed, the building's very shape, a long document-lined corridor without any real depth to speak of, comes as close as an ancient monumental building could to a simple line, as if reproducing in its public architecture the serial irreversible structure of the time count. Now, we might be tempted to think of archive buildings as institutions oriented toward the past, as preserving, accumulating, and even arresting temporality. But they were also, and I think in much more profound ways, directed toward the future, directed forward. The registration of fiscal documents was a responsibility and a promise designed to anticipate the practical needs of various legal scenarios, inheritance disputes, tax cases, and so forth. More fundamentally, though, the Seleucia Archive building materialized a confidence in the continuity of the imperial project itself. This vast building, 140 meters long, must have remained mostly empty for many decades after its construction. It expressed the inevitability of a knowable, secure, and stable future. Put another way, the verbal tense enunciated by the Seleucia Archive was the future perfect this will have been. The unparalleled enormity of the building, stretching 140 meters into the future, was a translation of the Seleucid era into a daunting spatial gigantism, and all that this proclaimed. I find this building one of the most terrifying from all the ancient world. Um, There's something almost totalitarian about its design. Um, I'll now discuss much more briefly uh, my second case study, market trade. Throughout the ancient world, trade and commerce were sites of enormous distrust. It was competitive in ethos, and there were information asymmetries between buyers and sellers. Accordingly, it had long been the responsibility of civic and imperial overseers to control and authorize the the devices of trade, like weights and measures used in the market. This vesting of integrity in the impersonal mechanisms of commerce, rather than in the face-to-face interactions of fellow traders, was achieved through visible guarantees marked onto the surfaces of trading standards. These stamp symbols, or names of civic officials, indicated to participants in economic activities that a regulated system and a unitary system were at work. For instance, Athenian weights and measures bear on their surface the head of Athena, or a double-bodied owl. Hellenistic amphorae from the island of Rhodes, grain measures from the uh, Sicilian kingdom, and other devices and containers from many other places carried the stamped name of a magistrate, the magistrate in charge of the Agora. But within the Seleucid empire, this guarantee mark, the symbol of official fairness, was simply the Seleucid era year number, either standing alone or associated with imperial icons or local magistrates' names. Got three fairly randomly chosen Examples, the one on the top left um, is called a secoma. A secoma is a device to measure fixed volumes of liquids. Um, So four volumes of liquids um, running along the top. This is the front of the um, secoma. It would look, if you were using it, as if the liquids were coming out of the lion's mouths. Um, It's dated to year 170. Um, Quite a nice piece from a town called Maresha, just southwest of Jerusalem. very recently discovered in building work in Tel Aviv, a quite crudely made handle of a jug, um, of a jar, dated to the year 158, Um, a lead weight from the still-unlocated city of Demetrius-by-the-Sea. It's a trading city, clearly. There's a caduceus Hermes' staff. Uh, Hermes is the patron god of trade, a dolphin, um, the name of the city, and uh, the year 159. In other words, the precise volume of a liquid, the carrying capacity of an amphora, the correct weight on a scale were all authorized by the year date. This number functioned as a shorthand for both the entire system of certifying bureaucratic institutions and also for the universal categories of calculable and exchangeable units. It's perhaps the first example of numericalized time serving as a commercial assurance. These market devices, guaranteed by the visible Seleucid year date, either would themselves be regularly employed or would set the standard for other shopkeepers. In these ways, the imperial time system became the locus of the conventions and categories of fair exchange, of the criteria of reliability and credence, and fundamentally, of political predictability and accredited knowledge. Most of these market devices juxtaposed two measures. The Seleucid irridate and whatever commercial unit it guaranteed, a liquid volume, meaner weight, silver value, and so on. Some kind of analogy seems to be at work here between a temporal regime that, for the first time, was systemized as a regular, numerical, and countable abstraction, and those sites and activities where consistency and precision of units were required. Such quantification of prices, weights, volumes, and now, for the first time, years, was a shared technique of simplification, a translation of the world into a problem of arithmetic in order to solve it. This relationship of analogy maps onto, onto a semantic quality or characteristic termed portability. Portability describes the degree to which a semantic technology is contextually independent, applicable beyond itself permitting one domain to be treated as if it were constituted by the same principles or contain the same features as another. That is, time is like weight, is like money, and so on. And as we'll see, there are contemporary hints of such transposability between the ear account and standardized market units. Now, as Judy mentioned, my investigation of all this material is part of a book project on the emergence and interrelation of new kinds of time and historical experience in the Hellenistic East. I'm interested, above all, in the emergence in the third and second centuries BCE of apocalyptic theologies, or, as I hope to frame them, total histories. These are texts that run through a full and extended historical timeline, from the deep reaches of the past, through a succession of kingdoms or historical periods, into the Seleucid Empire, and then to the predicted end of time itself. All our earliest apocalypses date to the period of the Seleucid Empire, and they all emerge from the empire's core territories, Babylonia, Iran, and Judea. In this sense, the end of the world appeared for the first time in the Seleucid Empire. I think it's of the highest significance that these historical apocalypses don't appear before, and they don't appear outside the Seleucid Empire. Um, They're not found in uh, in Greek city states, in the Babylonian or Persian empires, at Rome, It's a phenomenon restricted to the Seleucid Empire's subject populations. The theological and political roots of apocalyptic are, of course, complex and multiple. And an entire discipline of Second Temple and early Christian scholarship is devoted to this problem of emergence. Where does the end of the world come from? But the Seleucid era has played no role in existing research within either classical ancient history or biblical studies. In my book, I'm suggesting that the ubiquitous visibility and bureaucratic institutionalization of an irreversible, interminable, and transcendent time system provoked, as a kind of reaction formation, fantasies of finitude among those who wished to resist the Seleucid empire. That's to say, the only way to arrest the open futurity and endlessness of the imperial time was to bring time itself to a close. Further, that these apocalypses answered the monotonized, depersonalised, and disenchanted, empty time of the Seleucid Empire, time that was a mere passing, and so a loss, with a conception of temporal fullness, in which everything, including the future, was already determined, where all that happened to you happened for you, where history was shaped, directed, and reaching toward a conclusion, and every event however dislocated part of a single story. Above all, these texts asserted that God, and not the king, was the architect of time. So in my closing remarks, I'll try to elucidate the unworking of the imperial time regime by returning to our specific case studies, market trade, and archives. The most familiar of these earliest earliest apocalyptic works, and the only one I expect people not in the field to be um, to, to know of is the Book of Daniel from the Hebrew Bible. Book of Daniel was completed in 165 BC. It's the easiest biblical book to date as it recounts a history which is accurate up to 165 and inaccurate after. Um, it was completed in the reign of Antiochus, IV Epiphanes, that is during the Maccabean revolt against the empire still celebrated in the festival of Hanukkah. Book of Daniel is built up of two main sections, a series of court tales in Aramaic, and then of apocalyptic visions in Hebrew. But both parts of the book display a subtle sensitivity to Seleucid imperial symbolism and, simultaneously, a remarkable capacity for ideological critique. I'll focus here on the famous tale of King Belshazzar's feast told in chapter 5 of the Book of Daniel. As the book reports, Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon, and his thousand nobles and his wives and concubines were making merry with the sacred vessels looted From the the first Jerusalem temple. Suddenly, a disembodied hand appears and inscribes mysterious words on the plaster wall of the palace. Nobody can read them, and there's general panic until the now elderly Jewish sage Daniel arrives. He reads, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Ufarsin, and then interprets as follows Mene, God has numbered Mana, your kingdom, and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed to kilter in the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided or, I think, assessed, persat, and given to the Medes and Persians. And that very night, the chapter concludes, King Belshazzar was kill- killed and his Babylonian kingdom conquered by the Medes. The tale has been an exegetes puzzle for over two millennia. What is the connection, it's been asked, between the writing on the wall and the fall of Babylon? I think for our purposes, it's key that the words on the wall give the technical names of market weights. Mene for a mina, Tekel for a shekel, and Perez for a half mina. Um, and just to illustrate this point, this is um, a Seleucid mina um, of the weight standard from the market. Um, it dates precisely to the time when Daniel would have been written, and it comes from the vicinity of Jerusalem. Daniel's own interpretation of Manet directly links this weight unit to the enumeration of time. His interpretation of Tekel adopts the imagery of a pair of weighing scales to visualize God's judgment. Like a shopkeeper's faulty weights in the Seleucid market, Belshazzar and Babylon have been tested and found light. So in sum, the famous episode of the writing on the wall pulls into a knot of mutual and intertwined identifications market weight units, the enumeration of time, and the fate of empires. And this is precisely the semantic portability that I think is first attested in the Seleucid Agora. It's even more starkly expressed in a passage from 4 Ezra, an apocalypse first composed in Hebrew during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian in the first century CE. But in a passage that cites a lost, probably Hellenistic source text, this apocalypse has the archangel Yeremiel, answer righteous Jews who are urgently inquiring when the end of days will come. And Yeremiel says, when the number of those like you is completed, for God has weighed the age in the balance, measured the times by measure, and numbered the times by number. This is only one example of how apocalypticism engages with a solucid imperial thought world. I think they're very closely intertwined. It's not simply that the language of Hellenistic government, in this case weighing and measuring, is displaced to God. Rather, it's the specific material expressions of the new Seleucid era and the calculative, authority vested time system these enunciate that God's true sovereignty expose as hollow and transitory. Something akin to apocalyptic fantasies of closure seem also to have been enacted on the ground. Back to archives briefly. Concurrent with a large public archive we've looked at at Seleucia were a pair of smaller domestic ones, designated by the excavators as Archives A and B. Both collections were deliberately burned at the end of Seleucid rule in Babylonia, preserving, as elsewhere, the clay seal impressions, but not the documents. In Archive A, over and above evidence of burning, several seal impressions of the Seleucid era date, these are the year numbers, were physically gouged out of the bullae. To quote the excavator, there can be no question but that the ceilings and presumably the documents to which they've been attached were deliberately destroyed, not for purposes of cancellation, but with hostile intent. This was an effortful, malicious act that clearly went beyond what was necessary for the obliteration of the parchment rolls. Our second case is a little more gruesome. Um, The monumental administrative center at Kedesh located at the edge of the Hula Basin in northern Israel, had first been constructed in the early Persian period and was used by all subsequent regimes. Following the Seleucid conquest and incorporation of the Southern Levant at the beginning of the second century BCE, an archive complex was inserted into the building's northwestern corner. So this suite of rooms here, and I'm gonna be focusing on this room. We can reconstruct from the small finds, topography, and architecture of this site something like a fiscal route of resentment. The local inhabitants of the region were obliged to hike up the steep hill to the administrative center on its ridge. They would then enter through this narrow door, pass by carrying their taxes, um, a suite of reception rooms where the local administrators lived. These were elaborate mosaic floors, imported glass, painted stucco. They would then deposit their taxes in kind in the bin rooms, and it seems that records were taken of payment or not payment, so debts, and preserved here. So if you were to design a building to generate resentment, this would be it. <laughs> Excavation revealed that this Seleucid administrative building fell victim to two independent disasters in short succession. First. The site was suddenly abandoned during or shortly after 145 BCE. It's about the same time as the archives are abandoned in Iraq. Then the main archive room alone of the entire administrative center was deliberately burned. Before the conflagration, the door was blocked up with stones, but only at the bottom of the door. So it seems more a symbolic than a practical act. And then two infants were buried within. One burial had been too disturbed for examination, but the other was sealed beneath a layer of burned brick debris. As you can see, the child's been interred without grave goods, and its head, hands, and feet were cut off before burial. This deposition was part of of the destruction moment. It's not a secondary reuse. The burning of archives was a recurring, if not especially frequent, event in antiquity. But in our two Seleucid cases, from Seleucia on the Tigris and Kedesh, the destruction seems to indicate an additional and rather shocking assault. The gouging out of year dates before the burning of the domestic archive at Seleucia on the Tigris points to something like a symbolic annihilation of the administration, its date rings, and perhaps the temporal system these manifested. At Kedesh, the motivations behind the horrific amputations and perhaps sacrifice of the child remain obscure. Perhaps we're dealing with a religious polluting, even a magical unworking of the imperial archive. Perhaps it was an archaizing act, reviving a defunct religious tradition at a moment of revolt. And there are traditions of of sacrificing babies in this area. But it remains unclear. Notably, though, even when the Kedesh sites was reoccupied by later inhabitants, this archive room was never again used. The destruction of these archives seems to me to be as much about enacting a temporal ending as inciting a more general bureaucratic amnesia. And I think we can place these symbolic on the ground gestures of termination alongside contemporary apocalyptic theology. For each, the empire's timeline, its linearized, open-ended, and pervasively institutionalized era system was a provocation to finitude. I don't think it's accidental that our apocalyptic texts adopt the archival imagery of sealing a text and filing it away for the future as their main framing metaphor, displacing once again sovereignty from the Seleucid king and administration to God and his angels. This cleft door of resistance, a physically violent, this-worldly confrontation with empire and theological fantasies of God's exclusive kingship on earth recur in various combinations throughout the Hellenistic East, especially as the Seleucid Empire begins to crumble. Let me close with some sweeping comments, which are really provocations for conversation. The Seleucid Empire was not a timeless state. Um, That maybe will not surprise many of the people who work in modernity or early modernity, but for the ancient world, it's quite unusual. The Seleucid empire did not fashion itself as archetypal or mythological. It did not precede or transcend time. Far from it. More than its predecessor, peer, or even successor regimes, Seleucid kingship and governmental practice employed and encouraged the dating of the world. The era was everywhere visible as a basic and necessary technology of administrative knowledge and urban life. By being exclusively numericalized, just numbers, the Seleucid era marked dates, not events, and it was the first chronological system to do so. At the same time, by structuring the kingdom's visibility and institutions around a continuous, irreversible accumulation of years, it made the Seleucid empire historical in a new sense, perhaps even the first truly historical state. This new imperial time, was just one of the countless ways in which we humans have comprehended historical duration. That is, of course, undeniable. And yet, the imperial temporality had also made visible, at least in part, and in the face of every cultural system generated to deny it, a terrifying truth, the irreversibility, loss, and indifference of time. In doing so, the Seleucid Empire made not only a new Earth, but also, as I think we can see in the emergent apocalyptic, a new heaven as well. It's in this sense, in the tension of living between an empty time of state and the call of an ending, of balancing number with meaning, that I think the claim could be sustained that the Hellenistic East opened the very historical age to which we still belong. I suspect you're having your own fantasies of finitude, so I'm going (laughs) to... Stop here, but um, thank you very much for your attention.